everybody to another episode of Integrated Informatics with Paragon Consulting Partners. Joining me today, along with my co-host, um, Jeff Williams, is Larry Sitka, VP and CSIO of Enterprise Applications at Vital, a Canon Group company, and a contributor to the Interoperability Roadmap. He's here to talk with us about the recently passed ONC Interoperability and Information Blocking Rule and what it means for healthcare and imaging organizations. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Lori. Larry, I know we've known each other for some time now, but for the benefit of our listeners, could you give us a bit of background about yourself and uh, how you became involved with the ONC role? Oh, sure. Uh, so, frankly, I started out in about as early as 1988 with this little thing called ACR NEMA 2.0 and DICOM standard. And I just evolved as an engineer through several different companies, ultimately to start my own, which is a VNA-based technology called Accio Technologies. It was built upon the principle of neutrality or neutral access to information and being able to share information without blocking um, of information from either the archive itself or from, from the PAC solutions themselves. So I became involved quite heavily in, in ONC, specifically when Dr. DeSalvo was around. She created the probably what I call, and I still to this day call the Bible. I mean, what a wonderful mind. She, what she did for healthcare from a government perspective is actually what I would hope we would continue to do. They created a document called the Interoperability Roadmap. And with that was basically an ecosystem of what healthcare will look like in the year 2025. Now, mind you, this was probably around 2012, somewhere in that vicinity. So quite a while ago. Inside of that framework, it talked about this ecosystem, ultimately, which is driving to a learning health system, aka AI and steroids. But it, in order to get to that standpoint, you had to first derive what I'll call a canonical data model or a standardized data model that actually sits on the disk, meaning take data in, clean it up, put it to disks. And once you have that canonical or that standard data model normalizing the data, you can send it to anybody in any format that they actually request. So traditional VNA technology took me down that path. And now the next step towards interoperability is, is occurring inside of that ONC framework. They actually released another document called Secure and Trusted Framework, which literally tells the provider-based organizations, here's how you're going to exchange content and more importantly, getting them ready for here's what you're going to pay, which is, is going to come as a quite a surprise, I think. The unfortunate side effect was that they actually put the onus on the provider. My opinion is it should have been placed on the vendor only because in terms of VNA constructs, part of installing a VNA, just like part of installing even a new fax solution, when you do that installation, there's always typically a migration process. I can't tell you, it is probably the most painful process of bringing a VNA online or bringing a PAX online. It is extremely difficult to get data out of a vendor's you know, information model. It got to the point, Lori, there was one point in time I almost got arrested. <laughs> and, and I literally surprised me. I literally was working on trying to figure out some private data elements inside of a DICOM data stream, and I was using a Wireshark to look at the data. 
And it was solely for the purpose of how do I take this data and create a GSPS object out of it so that I could preserve the existing information that was embedded in that PAC solution. After four days of trying, I figured it out. I went in for the summation and there stood the whole executive leadership team along with the DBA that I was working with. She handed me a cease and desist order. She left the room. She said, I can't talk to you. And the four others informed me that I may be under arrest for taking patient data back from Finland, right, into the United States. And I'm like, what? Of course, sheer panic set in. So what I ended up doing is I gave them my laptop. They destroyed it. Uh, They actually said, well, you could have it in your room, in my hotel room. They went back to my hotel room. They searched my hotel room. And immediately following the search of that hotel room, I was kicked out of the hotel. Wow. I actually had to go sleep two nights in the Helsinki airport. The worst experience of all my travel experiences, it was the worst. Needless to say, Lori, when that happened, I, I got pretty passionate about what was going on. I reached out to my U.S. senators and I pushed extremely hard for the construct around this locking and blocking. It is, it is real. It is actually still real today. I still mm-hmm. deal with it today. At least now, there's a pathway. So from the provider space, if locking and blocking is actually occurring, there's a one-page, one-link click that you go in and literally fill it out, turn it in, and I've seen it take maybe 24 hours, and all of a sudden, the vendor opens the doors. So it has worked extremely well. Here's the caveat. In some of the new new locking and blocking rules, there are some out clauses, right, that the vendor can actually fall back on, specifically around anything relative to, of course, PHI exposure, which that one hasn't really been the case, but they protect their, um, what they call their database schemas, just solely for the purpose of calling it intellectual property. You know, DICOM really defines the data model on the imaging side. So there's not really a lot of IP there that anybody really cares about anyways. But I get it. It is owned by them. But we're constantly now finding it's not a block anymore. It's I'm going to slow you down so much that it's going to take you forever to migrate this data. So what we've done in context of that, again, within the ONC rules, is we're allowed to go as long as we don't disrupt the existing application and cause a patient hazard issue, we can go around to the disk drives directly and extract the data. Most of these vendors actually either store in a quasi-DICOM Part 10 format or they store in some sort of native uh, format that could actually be decoded and has been decoded. But all in all, what Dr. DeSalvo actually did is phenomenal for healthcare. You know, I think I read that interoperability roadmap probably five times. And I'm like, what the hell are they trying to tell me? And I was actually painting on the side of my house. And I said, oh, my God, this is a a learning health system is an ecosystem for running AI based applications in a learning machine. So it was at that point in time, it was really evident where informational access is going to be very important. So I split the informational access into two pieces, right? Discrete content, meaning EMR stuff, and evidence documents, right? Meaning imaging, reports, videos, et cetera, other evidence content. And bringing those two actually together is what they're bringing forward. So 
Just out of curiosity, Larry, because I know you're so involved in the entire process. I know Dr. DeSalvo really facilitated a lot of this and had a great vision, but is there anyone else that you can point to? You know, because historically, yeah, I think you can agree that governmental agencies aren't necessarily visionary in the way they approach, especially long-term roadmap things like this. Where do you think that vision came from? I actually would say the organization took a step back. If you look at other businesses, Jeff, for example, the financial industry, the financial industry went through this same, you know, transition 40 years ago. If you if you think about how a stock transaction used to be done, it would take three to five days. It was all done by human. It was all paper driven. You know, when I left Ziegler and I went to Fidelity, it took a week to transfer. And what did they do? They printed all my records and they gave me a 12-inch flap to take to the other site. That's what we've been doing to patients, right? We've been asking them to transfer their records through paper, of which somebody scans it in and it becomes useless. So how do we take all this information and go digital with it? And I think that's more the transition that they focused on, Jeff, meaning how do we go digital with a traditional paper-based environment? And they're using those same techniques. So I was actually involved before I started off in the MI space in 88. Prior to that, I was actually at a company called um, NCR, National Cash (laughs) Register. So then we were acquired by Bell Labs, and I had the pleasure of watching all these different financial transactions and how they grew in size, in addition, how these models actually work. So if you model the stock, you didn't just run one model. You ran hundreds of models which shared hundreds of megabytes of data, which was a lot at that time. That is actually what's happening inside of AI. So what's going to happen is these app, these AI-based applications are actually going to collect and gather data and then learn from each other. In addition, be able to you know, present the information. So I think what DeSalvo actually saw was the digitization of healthcare that mirrored exactly what happened in the financial space. And we're seeing that, you know, evolution continue to happen. Speaking of that uh, element of digital transformation, I'm curious, you know, with with the um, the direction of the interoperability roadmap and um, this new information sharing and, and information blocking rule that's coming out, do you think that this could meaningfully uh, move us to a world where we have done away with paper-based workflows, fax machines, and CDs? Are we actually going to move the needle on that? God, I sure hope so. I actually don't see anything stopping it, Lori. What I'm seeing occur, and I'll, again, I'll just roll the clock back to a Chime meeting that I was at. There was a, the head of, of CMS was there, and she was informing the provider CIOs that they will be responsible for interoperability, not the vendor. And there was a lot of sheer panic <laughs> right at there. And she said, let me tell you my vision. She said, I live on the East Coast. I go to vacation on the West Coast. I present with a health event. I take this thing out, right, my smartphone. I one tap, my health records are exchanged. It's all 2FA. It's all then done, you know. I frequently wondered why we're, why are we rolling out the expense of all these, these healthcare information exchanges? But what you really saw happen is government funding actually go into infrastructure to support just a construct, right, of information sharing. And that's what's occurred, and that's what they're intending to leverage. So 
I don't think it can, it can come fast enough, but I do believe it will come. I'm excited about it. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting, right? Because we've really turned the model on its head. I mean, for 20 to 30 years, we have been looking at vendor organizations to define interoperability, to find ways to connect to each other. And inherently, there's that competition that exists. Um, and, you know, like you said, proprietary database schemas or other ways of sharing information, wanting to maintain a foothold at an organization and all of those other sort of drivers. So pushing the need for interoperability towards the healthcare provider organizations is, is somewhat revolutionary um, in the way that it's ever been approached before from what I have seen. But how do you respond then to the concerns that come out of that saying that, well, you know, the, the onus of understanding how to do that and the cost of implementing those necessary technologies and process changes is going to be inhibitive for healthcare providers? So anytime I approach a an organization from a vendor perspective now, the mathematical formula used to be one plus one equals two, right? So in other words, you have an application, you buy an application, now you have two applications and two twice the cost. Then it moved to cost neutral, right? One plus one is zero. We've now moved into an arena where we can easily, easily achieve one plus one is minus one. So you're seeing consolidation of infrastructure, that I believe is actually being driven by the cloud, right? You know, the construct of the cloud. But the other thing is the information itself, the workflows are changing. The traditional imaging workflow was take a study in, diagnose it and park it. That's not the case anymore. What's happening now is those studies are consistently being pulled and looked at by varying AI-based algorithms, not just once, but many times. We're seeing run rates, you know, at studies. You might do 10 or 15,000 new studies per day, but you have to be able to run at 250,000 to 450,000 studies every evening. That's how hard these things are mining. The other thing that is we're looking for other revenue opportunities. There's a lot of AI companies out there right now that are looking to, shall I say, lease data. If, if we can provide a means or a mechanism um, as a vendor to share in a PHI, EPHI secure manner with those AI algorithms, now the individual sites that we actually are installed at can actually use and leverage the data. So therefore, the provider gets paid to rent the data. So there's many different new revenue opportunities and models that are opening up. Why? because of interoperability, because of the d demand for standardization and normalization. It is one of the biggest hurdles, though. Most organizations do not realize just how dirty the data really is, even if it's been run through into a VNA once. You know, they're actually identifying that this is a mess. And if you look at that ONC interoperability roadmap, it's exactly what it says we had to do data normalization and canonical data models sitting on the disk. Now, the next step, once we've done that, phase two, which is technically what we're in, is actually the ability then to exchange that content. Thus, they had the secure and trusted framework. The next step is AI, which is a learning health system, right? A learning machine, a learning system that feeds its way back. If I have a study done, there's no reason that that study can't be used over and over and over again under different contexts. That's the fantastic, shall I say, world that, that Dr. DeSalvo has created. 
if you read what she has inside of that document, it's loaded with extreme, far out reaching thought that we can easily do. You talk about your latest work with the ONC has been around the secure and trusted framework. I think back to the early days of secure and trusted framework. I don't know if you had the pleasure of of visiting the section down in the bowels of the convention center at Hams. I think it might have been New Orleans, but I can't remember exactly what year. But I went down to see this, uh, you know, what what they were working on, and essentially it was um, secure email between two uh, partners that had developed a trusted framework. It was the framework was an agreement, and then it was secure email. I was not quite as impressed and, and inspired as maybe I had expected to be. Where are we at with that now? So here's where I'll kind of give you my personal twist on. There's a construct called blockchain. Unfortunately, blockchain is linked to Bitcoin. You know, if you look at distributed ledger technology, Jeff, there are so many things that we could do to actually secure a trust. And and by the way, that's what my financial institutions use today. So, you know, I have seven brokerage services but I have one interface and they communicate all through blockchain through a distributed ledger for me. It's like having five VPN. You know, that's the same analogy that I typically use. There's some really basic things that you can do inside of of blockchain-based technology. And I don't mean have one patient record in there. I'm just talking about sharing of constructs because it's not just patient data, it's physician data also, right? My wife, for example, she has to go through this credentialing every single year, and it literally takes her a whole weekend. She's got this stack of paper about two inches thick, and she's got to sit there at the fax machine every year. Can't can't digitize it, can't email it, got to fax it, right? That's the only way that I go figure. You know, it's like you print out of the EMR in order, you put it in a fax machine so it goes ding over there. Right. So they know somebody just got an order or referral. That's the stuff that we need to stop and change and can easily be done. So you can do that through DLT based technology via blockchain. That's actually where it will become appropriate. It's really well accepted inside of uh, the financial industry. Um, Almost every financial industry now uses it. My bet is probably within the next decade, you're going to see these health trusts do the same thing. Um, So as we move towards this um, broader interoperability where, you know, health systems have opened up, vendors are are playing more friendly with one another, there's going to obviously be a need to test a lot of this connectivity, right? We're going to need to make sure that we're sharing information in a way that, as you said, you know, earlier, it's not impacting clinical workflow. It is um, providing information in a way that is going to be digestible to the end users, whoever they may be. Um, and that it's done safely and securely while maintaining, you know, data concurrency and um, and respecting all of those paradigms of proper data management. The requirement to actually get together and test this smells a lot to me like the old connectathons, you know, where everybody kind of got together and and hooked their systems up and demonstrated that they were able to um, solve certain interoperability challenges. Are there any industry bodies, um, to your knowledge, that are planning to organize this type of event, but in this new context, um, to be able to test that? Not, not that I know of yet, Lori. What I, what I would hope is that the mantra would be taken on by the connectathons, because 
they they actually started out with with great results. What became unfortunate was because they were always three party tests, and you always had typically an image manager that sat in between, and you'd have two other ancillary systems, and you'd have one vendor come up and say, "Hey, can you just kind of change this data for me so that they can receive it?" And then when it comes back, can you change it back? What's unfortunate is we all should have tested against a common finite state machine, right? To get a pass fail, to get a grade and not, I'll say, be allowed to um, coerce the information to pass the result. Okay. And that's traditionally what happened inside of those. I'd actually like to, to see the Connectathon, IHE Connectathon organization take this on specifically as we start to move towards EMR connectivity through things like, you know, fire and firecast. That is going to, of course, be the means or the mechanism for getting, first step will be getting informational access out of the EMR and then using possibly the document element inside of fire will then give us acumen, you know, access to things like DICOM images or any, you know, other um, what I'll call evidence documents that are stored in typical VNA context. So it is rather loose right now. In fact, if you even read, you have to produce a test result, right, is what they say, but they don't really define how to do that and what it means. There is no, there is no script, right? There is no, hey, point at this device and run your application against it. And that's what I was getting at. When I first started out in my career and I validated, I created a token ring driver or an ethernet driver, I took that code and I tested it against a simulator. And that was run by IEEE. And then IEEE said, you passed or you failed. There was no in-between, right? It was pass, fail, that's it. They tell you why you failed, simply in the test that they rejected. But then you'd go back to the drawing board and you actually would create. But when you got done with that simulator, you could actually turn to another vendor and knew it was going to work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense um, when you explain it that way. And, and um, you know, that was actually going to be my tag on question was related to, you know, the ONC rule does stipulate that there is a requirement to publish those testing results. And then my first question was, what does that look like? You know, testing it against what? Is there a standardized way to do that? And, um, you know, I really like the way that you just sort of walked through that. We really do need to rethink the whole process, right? In order to to get something out the other side, you know, testing isn't necessarily good enough. What are we testing? It's really efficacy um, and performance that's going to matter at the end of the day. So I really like your take on that. So taking that one step further, then, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge, or I should say challenges, because I'm sure there's more than one, for both vendors and healthcare providers um, as we move through the implementation and adoption? of the uh, interoperability roadmap and, and the ONC rule? Yeah, that's a really easy answer. Do nothing. <laughs> that is the hardest challenge that we face. And I'm completely serious. You know, again, I've been in this business three decades. What I see happen, most of the provider staff has grown up through the clinical side, right? They've been promoted up the ranks and they're, they, clinically really understand, you know, their environments and how that flows. But unfortunately, that creates what I call a a vertical or a siloed approach. What we need, if we're going to leverage IT, we need to think horizontally. And again, this is where 
when you go to buy an application, don't think of that application servicing one job. That application should service every service line, every ology across the entire organization. And the only way to do that is if you can find a CIO that has a very strong clinical background with a very strong IT-centric, DICOM, HL7, this is how it really works background, don't lose her, right? Because she's special. Let me tell you, you need to make sure that you pay her because she's worth every single dime. I mean, it is really hard to find that special person because that's what it's going to take to really understand what needs to be changed. Otherwise, what's going to happen is they're going to just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And just look at PACs. Right, PACs came out. First one that I remember was was the late '80s. Well, they bought a PACs. Ten years later, they got really upset and mad at the PACs. And guess what? They bought another PACs. Okay, ten years or eight years after that, they got upset again and they bought another PACs. And now here we are again. Everybody wants a PACs. Let's start broadening that scope and looking at it from from the patient's perspective. You know, I manage my portfolio from a desktop. I don't know just about any of the information, but boy, it sure does put it to me in a form that, that I can digest and absorb. That's what needs to change. Now, if you're going to add all this discrete content into the same context, you have imaging results and, and evidence documents. You have discrete content coming in. You're going to have to break it apart, you know, not only for me, but the physicians. Me as a patient. My goodness. I want to go back to something you said, Larry. It's a great point, And I think that it's lost in the noise of our industry. I know you and I have had conversations for years about this. And you talk about this do nothing as the, as the biggest obstacle to progress. And if anything, COVID has exposed the fact that, you know, for years, healthcare says we can't do these things because healthcare is just not designed to be agile. It's not designed to pivot uh, and, and change directions. Well, if anything, COVID has taught us is that healthcare can absolutely pivot on a dime if it needs to, if it's a priority. We can put, we can stand up pop-up clinics and garages to care for ICU patients. We can develop testing centers overnight. So we healthcare does have the, the ability, right? <laughs> yes. So healthcare can pivot if it sees it as enough of a priority. So it's not a we can't do it. It's a we're resistant to it. Is that what you think? Yeah, yeah. And actually, you bring up a really good summation point because that is, again, specifically in the US, you have to, I'll say, follow the money. And, and not to be negative of it, but it's what, drives, it's what drives the organizations, you know, the reimbursements. The reimbursement model is being flipped upside down. So CMS, for many years, paid organizations a lot of money per physician to put data into the EMR. Now they're going to pay you to take data out and share that information. What that actually means is there's a, an actual financial reason to make this shift. It also means if I as an organization have done a study of some sort and you have another completely separate organization, I could actually be rewarded for sharing that information financially. So there's actually a mathematical calculation that makes acceptance, right, for a higher rate of reimbursement simply for sharing. Why? Because they don't have to repeat the exam. 
So there's dramatic cost savings inside of it. I also think you're going to see that, what I'll say, allow AI, you know, the information sharing of AI to actually take off. You're going to see, again, this new, um, this new revenue opportunity for organizations putting up data for AI vendors. And I'm seeing six-figure checks being written by AI companies to these provider-based organizations just to get access to anonymized data. So you hit the nail right square in the head. Now the money has changed. The reimbursement model has changed. My bet somewhere along the line, we're going to actually, healthcare is becoming unaffordable. We're going to have to go to something that's more amenable, right? For not only for the employee, but the employer, right? As they fund specifically in the US. I don't know what that means, Jeff. Because I'm not, I'm not one way or the other. I just need to know it needs to be fixed because it's really broke. It's become unaffordable. But the the construct of sharing, there's a financial reason to do it now. Thank you so much for for joining us today. The way that you look at these types of concepts and and really turn them on their heads to rethink or encourage others to rethink how we think about and, and approach interoperability is really refreshing. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. For our listeners, thanks again for listening and be sure to subscribe and join us again for more engaging discussions with industry experts on all things healthcare digital transformation.